I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Professor Laura McAllister of the Wales Governance Centre at Cardiff University. Laura, of course, is uh, quite a remarkable character because as well as being a very distinguished academic, she also used to play football and captained the Wales football team. Tell me about your background. You're from Bridgend. Yes, uh, from Bridgend, but actually spent a lot of my childhood in my Stirg in the Llynvi Valley, which is where my mother's family were from. And there was a quite a sort of political reason for that, interestingly, in that we, we grew up in Bridgend. I was born quite near Brinteg School in Wyndham Crescent. But my parents were very keen for us to be educated through the medium of Welsh, which was unusual, really, in an area like Bridgend. My mother was Welsh-speaking and came from uh, a Welsh family in uh, the Llynby Valley, but my father wasn't. And at that time, there wasn't much Welsh language provision in the old Mid Glamorgan County Council. But latterly, there was a Welsh unit attached to a school in Betos, which is on the way to my steg. Um, and my grandparents lived in uh, Cumvelin in my steg, which is where my mother had grown up. And so my sister and I, because of the travel distance involved, and there wasn't much provision, this won't surprise you, in terms of transport for kids from Bridgend who wanted to go to Welsh medium education. So we spent some of the week in my stay with my grandparents and came down because both my parents were working. So when, when I talk about you know my childhood, certainly my early years, I, I felt were as much in my stay as they were in Bridgend. But then latterly, you know, in, uh, when I went to comprehensive school, I came back to Bridgend and went to English medium comprehensive, Brinterian comprehensive, mainly again because of the travel difficulties um, of, of getting to Llanhari, which was the only Welsh medium school at that time. How was speaking Welsh perceived at that time? Odd, um, peculiar, political, definitely. I mean, a lot of people remember Betty Emanuel, who um, was a really doughty campaigner for, for Welsh medium education in Bridgend. My mother was a, a good friend of Betty's, and there were lots of other parents who felt quite passionate about allowing their children to have an opportunity to be bilingual but I think they were very much seen as oddities and I think what that represents really is how lacking in pluralism life was really at that point you know everyone was Labour everyone felt that the Welsh language was something for another part of Wales not for Midland Morgan and there wasn't much sympathy let's say um, in terms of uh, the council or councillors towards Welsh medium education so I think it was quite a hard battle and it was thanks to you know really important people like Betty and of course Trevor Morgan who established a Welsh medium school Esgoglindur just down the road from us in Bridgend which was in fact effectively a private school funded with his own money and um, my sister went there for three years because she's two years older than me and I went there for one year before it shut down when Trevor died but again that was regarded as something of an anomaly really that you know anybody should care enough about educating their children in Welsh to a put the money in b campaign hard to get a building and a premises and then three attract really talented teachers because some of our teachers are people like Gareth Lloyd Owen who went on of course to win the chair at the National Estelle there were a lot of very young teachers at that time who wanted to commit to providing Welsh medium teaching in the most anglicised parts of Wales although having said that you know obviously we weren't the most anglicised part of Wales you know the valleys and Bridgend and that area, at least at that time, were very different to South East Wales, where I think the language had... There was a different generational shift with the language. But, you know, Mid Glamorgan certainly was the probably the most 
Labour dominated in very simple terms part of Wales at that time. How political were your parents? My parents less so than my grandparents really. My, my grandfather was a miner like most people were at that time and he was a lodge official at uh, Coinant Colliery in well, Coinant is in Cairo rather than my stake. Very involved with the Labour Party and with trade unionism. And I have quite a lot of memories as a kid, you know, when we were in my stag of going to public meetings with him and it would be a major trade union official or a Labour politician, you know, and they'd be really packed public meetings full of men, basically, but the kids would play at the back, you know. And I mean, I can't remember who these people were now, you know, because I was probably only four or five or maybe a little bit older. But I can remember the atmosphere of those meetings, you know, and there was an atmosphere of kind of engagement you know everybody had something to say um, everybody had an opinion and there was a lot of anger obviously you know about conditions and so on in pits and I you know although that's very hazy for a young kid I can remember a lot of the mood of the meetings and I remember my grandfather talking about it afterwards so definitely more my grandparents than my parents although having said that when I joined Ply Cymru as a very young person at the age of 14 I think I joined Plaid and left very early as well. My mother became more involved with Plaid then and actually stayed involved with the Bridgen branch of Plaid right up until the time she died seven years ago whereas my involvement with with the party was probably a lot shorter than that. I know that your mother had a tremendous influence on you didn't she? Yes she did. Um, my, My mother was a very strong woman in an unusual way you know she left school very young at 14 went to work in Boots the Chemist in Bridgend, but was a very sort of aspirational person for herself and for us as children. I've got an older sister and a younger brother. And despite her not having a great deal of advanced education, she was absolutely committed to us doing the best we possibly could. She was very driven, I think is the best way of putting it, and very ambitious for us, but not in that kind of thrusting, middle-class way that we, we see and hear a lot of now. It was much more sort of aspirational working class in the sense that she believed that anybody could do anything, you know, if you were prepared to work damn hard and roll your sleeves up and believe in yourself. And, of course, that's not entirely true because everybody can't do everything. You know, there will be lots of obstacles along the way. But it it served us in really good stead in terms of approach to life and professional and personal life, for that matter. Because I think, for me, both in my sporting and my academic careers, you know, I've always had a sense of being able to do things and really go in for goals that were probably over-ambitious, if, if that's the term. But then it's surprising how close you can get to them if you aspire and, and work very hard. But the trick in all of this, of course, is not to be knocked back too much by defeat in sport or by not getting to the goals in other areas of life. Because I think from those experiences, you probably learn more than from easy wins and Quick victories, so to speak. Because, of course, they reached a point where you went to the London School of Economics. And what were you studying there? Politics? Yes. It's hard to think back to this time now, but obviously I was very political, uh, very interested in politics, and especially public policy. It sounds odd now because it's an odd thing for a 17 year old to be interested in, in a sense, but social policy, particularly. So, although I went to LSE to do a BSc in government, because that's what they call their politics degree there. All of my first and second year modules were in things like social policy and personal social services. And I was taught by some really amazing um, academics like Brian Abel Smith, you know, who'd advised governments over the years and had, had worked with people like Richard Titmus, who'd written the gift relationship about blood donor and the altruistic relationship that blood donor, the concept of blood donor uh, ship has. 
So I, I spent most of my time being interested in kind of how governments executed policy, really. So not the more traditional areas of politics degree. But then in my third year, I became fascinated with political philosophy and theory. So again, like everything, what a lot of it can be attributed to who teaches you and the inspiration they give you. But this will probably interest uh, you and listeners, is that the most inspiring political theorist that taught me was Ken Minogue, who, of course, was a, a right-wing theorist, uh, libertarian in some respects, but, you know, very firmly in, in terms of his politics on the right, but was probably one of the most inspirational teachers I had because he taught political theory in a very interesting way, got us to be very challenging about some of the big theorists like Burke and Hegel and Hobbes and Locke and Aristotle and Plato, you know, but but in a very different way. And that really sparked a, a great interest of mine, which was in the theory of politics. So it's kind of a weird combination, really, because most, most undergraduates did electoral studies or political behaviour or party politics in the UK and so on, whereas I did the ones that most people didn't choose as modules. The LSE, of course, is seen as one of um, Britain's uh, most reputed um, universities, and it's also perceived generally as quite an elitist institution. How was it for you coming from, shall we say, a working class background in uh, the Bridge End area to go and be exposed to people? And I imagine that a lot of the, a lot of your fellow students came from very middle class backgrounds and had a whole different life experience as a, as a child and adolescent before they went there. Yeah, that's a pretty accurate appraisal of my initial experience at LSE. It was very intimidating, the classic kind of imposter syndrome that you know people talk about when you're from a comprehensive school. And in my intake on, on the cohort who did BSE government with me, I think there were about 30, 32, 35 of us, and there were only about five of us who hadn't been to private school. And so it was a very small proportion. And we're, we're talking about, you know, proper prestigious private schools here. You know, a lot of my good friends in, in my first year had been to, you know, Eton and Harrow and some of the, the best, in inverted commas, public schools. But I learned really important life lessons, I think. And I often talk about this when I'm talking to groups of young people now, you know, who are interested in career journeys and so on. Because although I felt that imposter syndrome, and I was very, I felt very nervous initially in seminars and uh, about contributing... I realised very quickly that although these people were very confident, that their confidence came not from within themselves, but from what they'd had in terms of entitlements and what they'd been told to expect. So actually they weren't more talented than those of us who'd been to an ordinary school and come from fairly ordinary backgrounds. They were just more superficially confident in expressing it. And I think once I realised that, you know, my own confidence grew when I realised that, you know, I was every bit as... Um, intelligent as they were, you know, not more intelligent, just every bit as intelligent. I mean, actually, they were quite fragile people, a lot of them. I, I mean, I won't name names, but I had some really good friends in my first year who were from extremely posh backgrounds, but they were very fragile individuals, mostly because they hadn't had very good relationships with their families. Whereas I'd come from a really strong family background, you know, where we were all very close, I had a big circle of friends. Who, even friends from Bridgend who lived in London that we, you know, we'd get together and we still had great relationships and I think they really envied that you know, because it wasn't something they'd had having gone to boarding school and had a very different lifestyle but the other thing it taught me first of all was to be very relaxed about people's backgrounds you know, where they were from um, I think we can become a little bit over obsessive about that and almost discriminatory in a kind of reverse way that we think you know, people who've come from very posh backgrounds don't understand um, life 
outside that. I think that's a mistake, you know. Some of my, my closest friends from university were from that background and they were very compassionate, decent, good people who had the right values. So I think, you know, we've, we've got to stop, you know, generalising about things like that. And I suppose the other thing I learnt, having gone to LSE, was that everything was there to be taken, you know. It was... If one was prepared to really work hard and take the opportunities that go into you know a great university like LSE offered, then it was it was on a plate for us. You know we could get internships very easily. You know working with MPs, we we could work with some really prestigious academics. You know and they, there was a lot of help there and a lot of opportunities really. And I think it ingrained in me a concept of seizing opportunities when they're in front of you really and and not hesitating about doing so. You mentioned that you were pretty young when you joined Plaid Cymru. Uh, I wouldn't imagine there was a Plaid Cymru branch at the LSE when you were there. But did you maintain your commitment to politics at that time? And as a member of Plaid Cymru, were you committed to the concept of an independent Wales uh, at that time? Well, well, we set up a Plaid branch, actually, at LSE. And there were a couple of other Welsh students there, um, mainly from Cardiff, actually. I'm not doing politics, but doing other subjects. We set up a Plaid branch, which, you know, was, was a bit of fun, really, in those days. I wouldn't say I was terribly active, you know, during the time I was at LSE. You know, I was doing the, the things that students do uh, more normally than, than political activity, certainly at that time, you know, enjoying myself and so on. Um, and actually going to see a lot of football because, you know, I'm a massive Cardiff City fan and I went to see any game that Cardiff were playing in in the sort of what's now called the M25 uh, corridor, really. So um, I, I didn't do a lot of politics, if I'm being really honest, whilst, whilst I was at LSE. Uh, but I was still involved with the party, you know, and, and that was the time right at the end of my time at LSE when I stood as a candidate as well. So at that time you did perhaps have aspirations to go into politics as a full-time <coughs> elected well, politician? Well, I know this sounds odd, but no, I didn't really. Um, and I, I, I often tell the story as well of the group of students that I went to university with, 32 or whatever it was, at least half and probably a bit more of them wanted to be MPs, you know. Um, they were Labour and Conservative and, and Liberal activists and they were very clear about what the path to becoming an MP was for them. And I wasn't part of that. I was very clearly not wanting to do that. didn't know what I wanted to do, by the way. It wasn't that I had a great plan as an alternative. It was just I knew I didn't particularly want to be an elected politician. But I think you've got to contextualise this, you know, in terms of where Plaid was at that moment, the fact that it was pre-devolution, so the opportunity of becoming an Assembly member wasn't there. But but in any case, you know, I think I was pretty clear, as, as and that's been maintained through my life, that I'm not really a, a party political person. It doesn't suit me, and I don't think I suit parties either. So whilst I did stand for, for Plaid, I think that was very much part of a experience of of my political journey in that sense, but definitely not for me beyond that point. So at what stage did it become clear to you that it was an academic path for you? I think probably um, after leaving LSE, and I floundered a bit because I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I was clear that I wanted to do something that still allowed me to think about politics and to engage with politics and politicians, but I wasn't quite sure what that was, so I did a PhD, which I guess lots of people say if you're not sure, go and do a PhD. So I did that back in Cardiff, you know, in what was the original Wales Governance Centre, headed up by... um, J. Barry Jones, who unfortunately we lost um, three or four years ago now. And Barry was my PhD supervisor. And he's quite a remarkable man in many respects because he was one of the first people who properly researched Welsh politics. You know, Dennis Balsam and others were doing work in Aberystwyth at the time. But Barry really did some of the granular work on elections in Wales and was involved with some of the 
discussions about an early assembly or early parliament for, for Wales. And I did my PhD, though, again, on political theory. It wasn't on any of that. It was on concepts of community and political ideology. And I used a case study of nationalism to exemplify some of that. But it, but it was quite esoteric stuff, you know. I mean, I can't imagine now anybody... Well, I say that, although somebody approached me last week and said they'd read it. But, you know, these, this is the way of PhDs. But I was looking at things like guild socialism, utopian socialism, anarchism, communitarianism, and so on, and how they how the concept of community was at the heart of all of those, really. So, you know, it's not for everybody, I accept that, but, um, you know, for me as a theorist, it was really interesting. And then what was your first real academic post? Well, like like lots of, um, you know, sort of young academics, I had to scrabble around for any work, really. So I remember working part-time in Cardiff University, just as a part-time lecturer, doing seminars and so on, whilst I was doing my PhD. And I actually taught Rina Piodworth, as he's told people subsequently, in seminars at that time. So he was doing his degree uh, here in Cardiff. And then I had an opportunity to take on a junior lecturing post in, in Cardiff University, which I took on. And I, was, I think I was probably a year or two into that when I saw an opportunity for a job in Liverpool University. And, it, you know, it's kind of strange, isn't it, the way you look back on, on your career, because I really thought I'd go to Liverpool for a slightly better, more secure job and for the experience and maybe spend two or three years there and then come back to Cardiff. And it, in the end, it took me 16 years to come back to Cardiff. Um, and there were a whole host of reasons for that. I mean, I loved Liverpool, you know, time in your life. You know, I didn't have any great commitments at that time, so it was an easy opportunity to go and live in a different city, which, of course, most people don't have once they have a family and so on. And I just loved the city, really fell in love with the city and the people, and I made some of the best friendships and best academic relationships, you know, that, I, that I've ever had. Plus, every time I thought about leaving, Liverpool offered me a promotion, which was fabulous, you know, and it wasn't that I was blackmailing them about leaving or anything, it was just that every time I thought about another job or somebody had offered me something back in Wales, Liverpool persuaded me to stay, you know, so I ended up getting a chair in Liverpool at a relatively young age. I think I was 38 when I got my professorship. And, you know, I felt like I should give something back then, so I stayed longer to work in that environment, really. And it was still a big wrench to leave when I left um, two and a half years ago to come back to Cardiff University. Meanwhile, however, you had another very strong interest in football. How did you fit that in, the training, the playing, etc., with the development of your academic career? Yeah, it's with great difficulty is the way to answer that, you know, because I don't, I've always been absolutely mad on football. You know, I'm the proper football anorak, you know, in, in quizzes and I read football annuals and every biography that comes out, you know, that's, that's a very sad reflection. But um, I've, al- I've always been an absolute football fanatic since I was a very small girl. And I've always played, but mainly as a youngster, played with boys, you know, because there weren't the opportunities to play with girls in a structured way then. Um, and because I was a decent player, you know, boys never noticed that I was a girl, basically, you know, um, and they were quite happy for me to play, you know, in the same teams as them. Then when I went to university at LSE, as we spoke about a moment ago, played for a little while with Millwall Lionesses, who were one of the top teams at that time. And then when I came back to Cardiff to do my PhD, I joined Cardiff City Ladies, a club I pay- played with then all of my career, apart from a little... Uh, sojourn in Everton when I went to Liverpool but but the answer really is with great difficulty because like most amateur sports people particularly sports women because there are more amateur sports women than men in football um, it was a case of really juggling everything so I'd get up very early to train you know I'd think nothing of getting up at you know five and doing a, a you know an hour and a half in the gym and a, a long run whilst I was in Liverpool this was um, and then training again in the evening and doing my training work with the club there before I played I came back on a weekend to play for Cardiff. 
So in a sense, I, there are two things really. First of all, it teaches you a very kind of disciplined lifestyle. It's almost kind of, you can either say monastic or army style really, because you have to be very, very structured about how you manage your day, physically, mentally, nutritionally, all of those things. But I, I think that's a good a good structure for life generally. And secondly, I never really left Wales because I was still playing for Cardiff, which meant that if we were playing home, I came to Cardiff every other weekend to play a game. But if we were playing away, we could be playing in the Midlands or the Northwest, you know, because the leagues were all over the place at that time. But, you know, it kept kept me involved with Welsh sport, which was, you know, really important to me. What helped, actually, like as an anecdote, was that I trained with a woman who became a really close friend of mine, Joe Kaywood, who was a triathlete. Um, and so she was training just as hard as I was. So we'd both get up early in the morning, both train in the same regime. I'd do some football-related training and she'd do triathlon-related training. And Joe moved to New Zealand a couple of years ago, but we're really still close friends and we think back on those days with a lot of affection and you know, pleasure, really. Now, of course, in 1999, everything changed in Wales from a political perspective. And whereas previously in the pre-devolution era... I suppose Wales, the study of Welsh politics was a bit odd because there wasn't actually an institution to which it was related. So you obviously had Welsh MPs and um, yes. there was a certain dimension because of the existence of the of the Welsh office from 1964. But nevertheless, it was all a bit semi-detached, if you like, from mainstream politics, perhaps. Um, with the arrival of the National Assembly in 1999, since then, there's been shall we say, a small band of academics, including yourself. Yeah, very small band, yeah. <laughs> who've taken a great interest and who have, have looked at what's going on, looked at what's needed. And, of course, in the early years, you were involved in the Richard Commission, which was set up within a couple of years of the Assembly uh, starting. And um, it quickly became apparent, didn't it, that the, the form of the Assembly as it was set up in 1999 wasn't really fit for purpose. And you were one of those who identified that as part of the Richard Commission. So how would you, uh, and this is, a, this is a big question, um, how would you say that the development of the Assembly has gone since those early days when there was a bit of a false start? It's been incredibly speedy, I suppose, and, and that sounds an odd answer because there's been a lot of frustrations along the way from lots of people that things haven't moved faster but if you look back as you said then you know we're we're 20 years into the National Assembly's lifetime and it's gone from being an institution designed on the back of a fag packet effectively with all constitutional principles contravened to being a working parliament and acquiring additional fiscal powers as we go along. And all of these are hugely significant milestones in the development of an institution. So while some people will say, hasn't it taken so long to get to a functioning parliament, I'd turn that on its head and say, in parliamentary historical terms, 20 years isn't actually that long to transmogrify into something as significant as we now have. And I think there's a lot of important things under the surface of that, really. The fact that we now have a properly functioning parliament with fiscal and financial responsibilities and a reserved model of devolution that makes clear where the Assembly's competences lie, and they are overall major significant public policy areas, is a massive, massive breakthrough. But that puts even greater responsibility on the politicians and the structures around the politicians. 
and you mentioned obviously the Richard Commission. I'm very proud of the Richard Report because I think it's stood the test of time. And in fact, without the Richard Report and how comprehensively we set out the problems, but also some solutions, I don't think we would have moved on to, to have had the Government of Wales Acts that we've had subsequently, um, or the Wales Acts most recently, or indeed some of the changes to the um, legislative framework and the operation of the institution. And all credit goes to, to Lord Richard, who sadly we lost it a year ago, who really led that with enormous skill and tact and charisma. Um, and I think without his leadership, it would have been very hard to reach a consensus on, on that work. But but as well as that, obviously, going go to a, a period more recent, then I chaired the expert panel on the uh, future of the Assembly and the, the makeup of the Assembly, so to speak. And you know, Martin, you know, our recommendations were controversial in the sense that um, politically they're not terribly palatable to the public. But, but I think are blindingly obvious to anyone who knows what the weaknesses of the operation of politics in Wales are. So we'd recommended an increase in size of the institution to between 80 and 90 Assembly members, ideally at the upper end of that bracket. We, we'd suggested a change in the electoral system to use STV with gender quotas uh, built in, single transferable vote. And we called for the reduction in the voting age to include 16 and 17 year olds in the franchise. All of those seem to me to be issues that we look back on at some point in our history and say, why on earth did we make a fuss about any of them? Because the most fundamental one about the size, by any measure and by any standard and by any international comparison, the Assembly is too small to do its job. Um, and we need tough conversations with ourselves, with the public, with the parties about that. The difficult ones are with the public, obviously, because you know no one likes a call for more politicians. But, but if you turn that around and say, do you want a limp institution that cannot carry out its functions effectively and scrutinise £16 billion of public money effectively, which is your money at the end of the day, um, then I think people might have a slightly different take on it. I suppose one of the problems is that when you look at the actual achievements of successive Welsh governments, and well, to all intents and purposes, it's been a one-party institution, although with brief periods of coalition with Liberal Democrats and then Plaid, nevertheless Labour has been the driving force. People can quote um, things relating to the economy, things relating to educational attainment, things relating to the health service, which indicate that uh, everything isn't as good as people perhaps would have hoped for. Uh, there hasn't been necessarily that devolution dividend that people thought they were voting for in 1999. There are those on the other side of the fence who will say, this institution has failed to deliver, so why should we, in a sense, reward them by increasing the size and giving them even more powers? Well, the first thing to say is you don't punish a parliament for the activities of government, and never has there been a better time to discuss that than in the context of Brexit, of course, at a UK level. You know, you don't hear, I know this is an extreme end, but you don't hear people talking about abolishing parliament because of the failings of the UK government. So I think that's a really important principle to lay down at the very start. But I, but I understand your point, Martin, entirely, and I know what you're saying. And you can approach an answer to that by either being terribly um, evidential and setting out the reasons why it's harder to make some significant public policy breakthroughs in Wales than it might be in Scotland, and that it, you know all of that would refer to things like um, the demographics of Wales, 
the incredible structural poverty of Wales, the lack of independent institutional framework, civic society weaknesses. But actually, I think all that's known. The biggest weakness for me is a complete lack of pluralism and bravery. Um, and if you put those two things together, I think that's why we are where we are in terms of lack of progress on most of the key public policy areas. There are little glimmers of light, though, um, and if I wanted to be positive, look at the new curriculum. I think that the curriculum in uh, schools has real potential to change to the Donaldson curriculum, has real potential to be a massive breakthrough in our education system. But, of course, it's a very difficult thing to roll out, and we're seeing with some of the discussions over the past week or so just how challenging that is for the education minister. But But go back to my point about lack of pluralism and bravery. I don't think our politicians have been sufficiently ambitious enough or brave enough um, when it's come to demanding change. And I don't just mean in relationships, uh, intergovernmental relationships with the UK, although that is important, because you don't get anything at UK level unless you bang the table and shout. That's been my experience of working with public bodies, you know, in sport and, and elsewhere. So there's that. But there's also bravery in dealing with a machinery of government uh, in Wales and a machinery of implementation in Wales and by that I mean local government I mean the public bodies, the sponsored bodies the health bodies and so on Um, there's been a lack of courage really in tackling some real structural issues around all of that because that has a really important contingent effect on how you deliver policy that's decided upon by um, the National Assembly If you then look at the reasons why there's been a lack of courage or a lack of ambition and aspiration, I think it comes from the fact that we simply don't have political pluralism. You mentioned the point that Labour's been, Welsh Labour's been in power in Wales from the very outset of devolution. Let's let's think about that for a moment. You can't criticise Welsh Labour for winning elections. They're they're a very effective electoral machine, and clearly they've they've beaten the other parties. You know, in a sporting contest, you don't criticise the person who wins. You criticise the people who didn't challenge them effectively, and I think that's where the problem lies, really. Um, apart from the structural issues, like we have an electoral system that is loaded to benefit the biggest party, and actually can deliver a, almost a majority of seats with under thirty-five percent of the vote. I think you know we need to just rehearse that a little bit more. But but aside from that, the weaknesses have been in the opposition parties. The fact that Plaid Cymru, the fact that the Welsh Conservatives haven't been able to really challenge. Labour is the reason that Labour are in power and the coalitions that that we've had with the Lib Dems initially and with Plaid Cymru formally and then relatively informally more more recently barely scratch the surface of Labour's dominance so I think culturally we have a, a political arena that is very conservative with a small c that is not terribly accepting of challenge and criticism that is pretty partisan in terms of things like public appointments and who leads what and where. And I think one of the big hopes that we must have from the new First Minister, uh, Mark Drakeford, is that he adopts an approach towards what my good friend Kevin Morgan talks about as a more porous government, one that talks to all of the rest of us out there, academics, journalists, civic leaders who are not from the same background as the government uh, politically and listens to views more carefully and incorporates some of us, all of us, you know, from civic society in some more of the decision-making. Because I think only then will we have more aspirational, tough, challenging 
public policy that actually delivers for the Welsh people. I suppose from a purely electoral point of view, the challenge is to get Labour to budge, isn't it? Because they've obviously got a vested interest in the status quo. So how do you persuade people in the Labour Party to, to change their view and to say, yes, we'll go to STV, if that would mean that they would lose their predominance? They wouldn't necessarily lose Labour predominance either. I mean, in our report, our expert panel report, we modelled quite a few scenarios as to how an election might look were it conducted under STV or Flexible List using a larger assembly of 80. Um, And actually, the results will surprise some people if you've got the energy and time to go through those tables. And I think it surprised some people in the Labour Party as well. I think historically people have assumed that a more proportional system wouldn't benefit Labour. But actually, if you look in detail in a more forensic way, some of the uh, alternative electoral systems do benefit Labour more. But in a sense, that's not the point. I think, and this is going to sound terribly naive, but I can say it because I'm an academic, not a politician, I think the party in government is there to serve the people and the nation, not the party. I know, I appreciate, you know, I'm saying this slightly tongue-in-cheek because I know completely um, the opposite perspective on that. You know, it is in Wales's interest to have a parliament that is fit for purpose. It is in Wales's interest to have a set of backbenchers who can effectively scrutinise the spend, not only of ministers, but of all of the rest of the sponsored bodies and health boards that are out there that spend everybody's money and taxpayers' money in Wales. So... In a sense, brave First Minister and a brave Cabinet would say it is our duty to create an institution that works effectively for the people of Wales. Um, and, I, and actually, I'm pre- you know, prepared to have a debate with anybody on that, you know, including my friends in the pub, because I was accused when I got the report out of not speaking to people in the pub. But as you know, Martin, I do like a beer. I've had a beer with you over, over the years, and I'm quite happy to talk to anybody in the pub about this, because I think the argument stacks up. Let's see if Labour picks up your challenge, uh, Laura. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.